0: Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry.
1: The physiologic changes that occur during pregnancy can exacerbate symptoms of existing neurologic disorders and cause a wide range of acute neurologic issues. These conditions pose a unique clinical challenge due to the complexity of the causes and effects as well as the potential risks of therapeutic interventions. In this episode of Neural Pathways, we're discussing the management of neurologic disorders during pregnancy and considerations for the preconception and postpartum period. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neurooncologist in Cleveland Clinics Neurological Institute, and joining me for today's conversation is Dr. Carolyn Just. Dr. Just is a neurologist in the Center for General Neurology within Cleveland Clinics Neurological Institute. Carolyn, welcome to NeuroPathways.
2: Happy to be here.
1: So Carolyn, uh, you know, what I know about you, because I had the pleasure of having you give a talk at at a meeting that I ran this past year, is you love Jeopardy. This is true. You do love Jeopardy. So as we go along, if I can think of a good Jeopardy question, but I'm not sure that I can. I know you love it. But tell the audience a little bit about yourself and uh, how you came to the Cleveland Clinic and how you became interested in women's neurology, really.
2: So I did all my training in Canada and my family and I found ourselves... Um, in Ohio for what we thought was a year and turned into much longer. Uh, The clinic job here at Cleveland Clinic came up right as I was looking for a new academic institution to join. I've been here for about a year and a half and it's been great. My interest in women's neurology and neuroobstetrics, a little bit um, something that I enjoyed during my epilepsy fellowship because it's a huge part of that, but came after, unsurprisingly, I had my own child and got some insight into the unique case of the physiology that happens with pregnancy and how it's a unique state that we don't understand very well, and certainly a clinical gap that we need to fill within neurology.
1: Well, I think it's just great that you're here and and that you have such a strong interest in this. So it it really is a unique challenge and uh, a really a specialty on its own. So it's it's great to have you here, and I'm really so pleased that you're interested in it. So when it comes to neurologic disorders and pregnancy, uh, in some ways there's two main groups. Those individuals who has, have an existing neurologic disorder and become pregnant, and then those who develop a new disorder or symptom Uh, after becoming pregnant. So let's start with the first group, right? You have an existing uh, neurologic disorder. What do clinicians need to consider when an individual with an existing disorder becomes or wants to become pregnant?
2: So one thing that's really important to know is medications can be teratogenic and their half-life for preconception is really important to know, particularly for some of the newer medicines. Um, There are CGRP, antibodies, uh, the injectables in migraine that have very long half-lives. So so it's very important that as clinicians, we inform our patients that we would like notice if they are planning on having um, a child or trying to get pregnant. Of course, a large percentage of pregnancies are unplanned. So it's important to still, if a patient is of childbearing potential, to have a conversation about the possibility. In terms of MS, perfect example of something where There's a bit of a double-arrowed pathway. So pregnancy definitely plays a role in MS treatment, and MS can really play a role in when people choose to get pregnant, whether they want to be off meds for longer, if they are trying to conceive, if they're considering fertility treatment. So it definitely plays a huge role there. Another really important consideration comes up with epilepsy. So many anti-seizure medicines, ASMs, are teratogenic, but many are only very slightly stratogenic, and others are much more concerning. And knowing the difference between those is highly important. There's very few scenarios, for example, in which a patient of childbearing age should be on valproate.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that's probably uh, number one on the most wanted list to Indeed. avoid. Indeed. Uh, so it's always good to put that out there. Uh, what about folic acid use?
2: So that's, you've brought up a, a controversy there. So initially, Folic acid use, the more the better, um, was felt to be the case for women in general who are trying to become pregnant and for the duration of their pregnancy. Um, However, a study came out a couple years back raising a concern that with higher doses of folate, um, there was a potential for negative cognitive outcomes. So what we tend to counsel nowadays is the appropriate dose of folic acid is likely one to two milligrams rather than more than that.
1: And in my reptilian brain, I seem to remember, but I could be wrong and you can correct me, that uh, women with MS who get pregnant, during the pregnancy, their disease often is quiescent. And then once baby's born, it can kick up again. Is that still the teaching or is that changed?
2: That is correct. So overall, interesting historical vignette, it used to be thought that because relapses... Is this a Jeopardy question? What is... (laughs) It used to be thought that because women with MS were so likely to have a postpartum relapse that it was caused by the epidural that they had. Oh, okay. But in fact, your risk of having an MS relapse halves, so it becomes half as likely during pregnancy and then doubles during the three to six months postpartum. So lifetime risk similar.
1: And you recommend they go off their disease-modifying medications during their pregnancy or starting before they get pregnant?
2: It's definitely a collaborative decision between their MS specialist. I'm happy to be involved. We do have um, MS specialists here who have an interest in this uh, part of our group. Um, There are some exceptions to that. So you certainly could stay on glutarum or acetate um, throughout a pregnancy. Um, There is lots of clinical um, opinion that being on natalizumab uh, is reasonable throughout pregnancy um done every 6 weeks and then there's another school of thought that for patients for example on ocrelizumab that you just want to make sure that you time it so that their time of being untreated and not pregnant is the least amount of time possible
1: and i remember when my wife was pregnant with our first child and i she does have migraines although not bad bad but I think they said you could take some Tylenol periodically and that's it. <laughs> What's the teaching now? Oh.
2: <laughs> yes. Um, migraines is a nice example where in pregnancy, we're really quick to jump to, well, there's nothing we can do for you.
1: You hear that a lot, right? So
2: often. And there's nowhere else in medicine um, other than in you know, management of diseases during pregnancy that we say that to people as often. So what actually can you do for acute treatments? Palinol doesn't work particularly well. It also doesn't work outside of pregnancy for migraine. What I usually uh, tend to offer, I really do try to avoid butalbital based products, even though that is the traditional obstetrics uh, teaching, because they're very addictive, they're sedating. Uh, doing local lidocaine, such as an occipital nerve block without steroid, is a very reasonable acute treatment. Ciproheptadine, also a very reasonable acute treatment. And sumatriptan doesn't have randomized evidence for safety, but has a lot of evidence of safe use. So sumatriptan is something, and other triptans, sumatriptan is just my favorite. They are used regularly during pregnancy um, by myself and other neuroobstetrics clinicians. And it's really nice for patients to hear that actually something that worked well for them can still be used.
1: Excellent. So if we look at epilepsy again, just to backtrack for a second, any favorite drugs someone wants to, someone's, you know, so I have epilepsy, I want to get pregnant. Um, any particular drugs? We know we got to avoid Depakote, uh, but favorites are drugs that uh, we have data to support less?
2: Absolutely. So the main two that have the most data and Lowest risk of teratogenicity are levotiracetam and lamotrigine. Both are just slightly above the regular rate of teratogenicity. In terms of which one, if a patient has a psychiatric history, I'm less likely to want to start levoteracetam. Um, if they really need control quickly, I'm less likely to start lamotrigine because you have to titrate it up so slowly. So those are the main two that I tend to use for women of childbearing age, women with epilepsy. If for example, somebody has had a previous Steven Johnson's uh, episode with Lamotrigine and became psychotic on lefoteracetam, I will consider other options depending on their type of epilepsy. Oxcarbazepine also has relatively good safety data. I really would just caution using topiramate or divalproate, valproic acid, if you have other options.
1: So let's say uh, a different scenario, you have a young woman that's on birth control pills and doesn't want to get pregnant Mm -hmm. and has a seizure history and on anti-seizure medications. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about some of the medications that that are known to influence uh, birth control efficacy? Mm -hmm.
2: So any inducer of CYP enzymes is likely to do so. Um, Those are generally phenytoin, carbamazepine, oxcarbazepine, Uh, topiramate can do it at higher doses. So the doses we use for epilepsy sometimes, but the doses we use for migraine, less likely. Um, The other thing to keep in mind with that is the state of pregnancy or the birth control pill itself, the hormones can actually increase metabolism of lamotrigine. So patients may require higher doses of
1: lamotrigine. Sounds like you get into a vicious cycle there. Indeed, you do. Yeah. So that brings me to my next question, and then that is monitoring of levels during pregnancy. Yes. Talk about that a little bit.
2: So they should be monitored monthly. Ideally, you get a level that was indicative of good control from prior to pregnancy, like a levoteracetam or lamotrigine level. And you try to target that. And you will need to be fairly aggressive with increasing dosing, particularly for lamotrigine and levoteracetam Sometimes you end up with patients on like 300 milligrams twice a day of lamotrigine. That's not uncommon.
1: You get some calls from the pharmacist?
2: Yes. Yes. Some very concerned calls. And the other thing to keep in mind is when patients deliver to ensure that they don't become immediately lamotrigine toxic. Mm-hmm.
1: And the other seizure medications that we need to monitor specifically? I guess any of them, it's a good idea just to check, right?
2: Yep. So I would still get monthly or every six week levels. For most cases, you're just more likely to need to adjust lamotrigine and levetiracetam more aggressively. Interestingly, some bigger studies have shown that The rate of seizure stays about the same, but the rate of medication changes is much, much higher, meaning if we're doing a good job, hopefully we're preventing
1: these seizures. Can you comment on MRI during pregnancy?
2: So if you need to do an MRI for a new diagnosis, don't do gadolinium because gadolinium is is teratogenic because it has uh, radiation. Most things can probably be avoided if you're looking for, example, a mesial temporal sclerosis, like a a localizing um, epilepsy study, you're probably not going to operate during that pregnancy, so perhaps you can wait. But doing an MRI during pregnancy is not harmful if you need it. So for an elective looking for a specific epileptogenic lesion, maybe delay. But for example, if a patient has a new onset headache and focal findings, that patient should be getting a non-contrast MRI.
1: Yeah, it's a real issue with us in the tumor field because we have a lot of patients with low-grade tumors that decide to get pregnant or don't decide, but get pregnant. What we generally tell women is that we try to avoid the MRI in the first trimester, although we tell them we don't have any good data to support that it's going to do anything negative. Mm-hmm. But since we know the development is during that time, we try to avoid it. And we do the same thing. We try, we recommend not doing a contrasted MRI scan if we can avoid it. If we see something we're giving contrast would make a difference. Mm -hmm. then we'll have that discussion with them separately. Uh, And we try and do that late in the pregnancy. We'll often do an imaging study, depending on the tumor type, closer towards the end of when they're going to deliver. And then, uh, again, I'm not sure if you want to get into this, but, you know, it comes down to can they have a vaginal delivery? Do they have to have a C-section?
2: There are very few cases where a C-section results in a better outcome. For example, Chiari malformations, it used to be thought that these patients must have a C-section because the Valsalva necessary during labor will worsen and potentially cause herniation. That is substantially untrue. We don't have randomized uh, studies, but we do have a fairly large cohort study that came out in 2017. We have certainly, I think, as a result of that, prevented a lot of unnecessary C-sections. There are also very few reasons to avoid an epidural and neurologic disease. Most of them are the same as a patient who's not pregnant. So a patient on anticoagulation, a patient with a spinal cord tumor, a patient with a local infection. In general, we wanna have good evidence for recommending a certain intervention. Another example is AVMs. Is the Valsalva too risky? Should these patients have a C-section? Probably not, they don't necessarily need one. And C sections do have um, increased risk of, for example, DVT formation. They, it's not, it's a more controlled delivery, but it's not um, an easier recovery. It's a more difficult recovery for the patient.
1: And should these patients all be seeing a high risk OB?
2: Usually MFM, yeah. So um, there should be collaboration um, between OB, MFM, and uh, potentially the neuroobstetrics person involved. Um, There's some great collaborations here between the cerebrovascular uh, clinic and MFM. They have their own stroke and pregnancy-dedicated clinic, and uh, collaboration is absolutely key. So everyone has their area of expertise, but we want to make recommendations based on safety and considering the patient's preferences as well.
1: What about genetic disorders? So you know, a lot of uh, neurologic gene- genetic disorders, neurofibromatosis, very mm-hmm. common, you know, one in three or 4,000 patients, NF2, von Hippel-Lindau disease, mm-hmm. and and even scarier things like Huntington's disease. What do you tell patients? Do you Do you tell everybody you need a trip to see medical genetics or genetic counselor?
2: I try to have at least a preliminary discussion myself, particularly for some of the specific diseases like Huntington's. We know about genetic anticipation. We know about its transmission. I do recommend that everybody with a clearly transmissible neurologic disease does speak with genetics. Sometimes that happens a bit too late. Sometimes it happens when people are already uh, pregnant or can't make decisions um, based on that. One interesting thing to note is it comes up incredibly commonly that women with migraines feel it would be irresponsible of them to become pregnant because they think that their child would be suffering from the same level of migraines, which I think is sad for many levels, number one. Yes, migraines are genetic, but they are highly treatable in most cases. Number two, migraines tend to get better in pregnancy, especially after the first trimester. And number three, it's not a a fair thing for someone to make that much of a big life decision without all the information.
1: I guess the other reason for seeing medical genetics is that, you know, when I used to do a lot of NF work, mm-hmm. you know, we would send a lot of, you know, because a lot of young people would come in and be seen regarding their disorder. And, you know, we would discuss the fact that it's not a dominant disorder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in my personal experience, those that were minimally affected, more likely to have children, those that were more affected, less likely, although... Their children may be more or less affected than they are. It doesn't necessarily correlate with them. But we would always recommend they see medical genetics to at least have a discussion of uh, preconception testing that could be done different ways of enabling or determining if the embryo is going to have the same genetic disorder or not. And depending on what their religious or moral or Constitutional decisions were, they could make those themselves. I wasn't here to be the moral police, but you know, there are options in that regard, and I think that it's not a one stop shop, right? What someone may choose to do, somebody else may, it's not for them.
2: That's a really fundamental principle of neuroobstetrics. We want to empower patients with the right information to make their own risk benefit decision. We don't want to assume that the risks always outweigh the benefits.
1: Yeah, I, I like that because as it, this is what I deal with all the time. I never want to feel that I pushed a patient to do something they did not want to do.
2: Absolutely. Even
1: though, you know, we tell patients what we recommend, but, you know, we don't want to push them to something. We want to make sure that as as much as they can, they have free choice. Sometimes all options are difficult options, but at least they understand that.
2: And an option one can own and feel empowered to make or to choose is the best one.
1: So let's talk a little bit about uh, postpartum period and what's going on in the postpartum period with patients that have neurologic disorders.
2: Absolutely, so we can discuss a few different disorders here. Um, Firstly, in the postpartum period, patients with MS are more likely to have a relapse, so that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, Patients with epilepsy are in a real hotbed of having a seizure due to sleep deprivation, changes in um, just their sleep patterns, and also that med changes are are often being made. Migraines also tend to flare in the postpartum period for similar reasons that seizures tend to be more common. The other reason is the hormone withdrawal that tends to happen around there, Um, For my patients who I see throughout their pregnancy, I tend to do an occipital nerve block around week 37 before they deliver, if I can time it correctly, which sometimes I can, sometimes I really can't, to get them through the postpartum period a little better.
1: I don't want to jump ahead of you because you're on a roll, but breastfeeding?
2: Oh, excellent point. So breastfeeding really depends on the patient's choice, first of all, and second of all, on the medication. Um, Way too often patients are told, well, you have to pump and dump, after you take your medication, which is both not evidence-based in most cases and deeply impractical because many of these infants don't take a bottle. And also, what are they going to feed their child if they are choosing to do breast milk? There's Formula is an option, but some people don't want that to be their option, right? Um, Gadolinium, perfect example. People are always told to pump and dump after gadolinium. We have no evidence that it crosses into breast milk. The important concept I want to um, get across here is check the RID, which is the relative infant dose. Of each medication. And if it's less than 10%, you're probably okay. There are some exceptions to that. For example, codeine, because it tends to it can be metabolized differently um, by different members of the population. So codeine should be avoided in the postpartum uh, period if a mother is nursing. But many medications have an RID, a relative infant dose that is negligible. Nortriptyline is a good example of one for migraine prophylaxis.
1: So it sounds like us men need to do a little more heavy lifting in the postpartum period, right, to allow a better sleep, a better rest, better relaxation.
2: You know, I think that um, is a really good point. I think having a village is very, very important, whoever that village um, is comprised of. If patients are able to financially do it, hiring a postpartum nurse or a doula is, is something reasonable. It's best to give concrete advice rather than telling people, well, make sure you sleep. Okay, well, how, how do I do that? If you can get a night nurse every fourth night. Don't uh, carry your baby is something that postpartum women are told due to the risk of seizing while holding their baby. Well, you know, that's kind of impractical advice, right? So perhaps minimize the time you're holding your baby while walking downstairs. Use a baby carrier if you can, right?
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Some of this stuff is so practical, but people just don't think about it.
2: Yes. Try to think of something you can tell your patient to do, not just what not to do. Yeah,
1: I like that. I like that. So let's shift over to acute conditions that are either directly or indirectly associated with pregnancy. Uh, can you go through some of the more common ones? I think a lot of us are familiar with with, with those, but can you go through some of the more common ones?
2: Absolutely. So um, new onset um, headaches in pregnancy are an important thing to look into and patients can get imaging during pregnancy. We already discussed limiting gadolinium if we can and potentially limiting some contrast, but If a patient comes in with a new onset, subarachnoid sounding headache, they should get a CT scan. Uh, It's just the right thing to do, right? Um, There are um, other neurologic conditions such as focal neuropathies that can flare during pregnancy or occur during pregnancy. For example, pregnant women are more likely to have carpal tunnel syndrome. They're also more likely to get Muralgia parasitica due to um, compression of the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve.
1: What about seizures, uh, elevated blood pressure, preeclampsia, oh, yes. eclampsia?
2: Definitely an area of interest of mine. So preeclampsia doesn't have a clean definition anymore, but in general involves elevated blood pressure beyond someone's baseline and proteinuria can involve end organ damage. Sometimes that end organ damage is brain related. What's interesting is that the pathophysiology of preeclampsia and eclampsia are likely the same pathophysiology as PRESS, posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, and RCVS, reversible cerebral Constriction syndrome, which um, can occur together, which means two things. Number one, it's uh, common that we're using outside of pregnancy magnesium infusions to treat those conditions. And number two, that we should probably keep in mind that when patients have preeclampsia and they uh, develop neurologic symptoms, we need to be a bit more proactive with imaging
1: when should somebody see you? You know, when should a a family practice person refer to you? So
2: we're a group. So there's uh, me, I tend to see the general stuff. I see a lot of migraines, but we have someone in every center. We get most of our referrals from OB or from MFM. If the question is preconception counseling, that's a great referral. If the question is known, known neurologic disease and an early pregnancy with concerns about how this might affect the pregnancy, that's also great. If it's a new neurologic symptom in pregnancy, great referral. We get a lot of Chiari-related counseling because Chiari's are so frequently diagnosed and diagnosed incidentally. Um, So that's also a very common referral. And patients are able to get to the expert that they need to get to. Mm
1: -hmm. And one thing we didn't touch on, any thoughts about myasthenia in pregnancy?
2: Oh, excellent question. So there's um, definitely some considerations Myasthenia is one of those conditions where it can be safely managed throughout pregnancy. In most uh, cases, there is the concern of um, neonatal myasthenia gravis from transient antibodies. But in most cases, patients are able to be managed carefully. Um, Sometimes they might need IVIG. Sometimes they might need more acute treatments. Sometimes they might need low-dose steroids. But in general, it's very achievable to have myasthenia and to go through multiple pregnancies. You just need to be followed by an expert.
1: So, final takeaway for our listeners.
2: The point that I want to get across is that we have to ensure we get risk benefits straight. So, if we're not sure what should be part of that risk benefit discussion, it's okay to ask, it's okay to refer. If you would like to just touch base, if you have a specific question, please reach out. So, we're a very collaborative institution and myself and my colleagues are happy to be involved in caring for your patients.
1: Excellent. Well, Carolyn, this was an interesting conversation. I've moved out of the realm of having children, but I have grandchildren. So, you know, it's, it's good to stay up on all this. So I'd like to thank you for joining me today and uh, look forward to
0: our continued collaboration.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: This concludes this episode of Neuro Pathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our Consult QD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word.